If you have your Bibles or Scripture journals, and I hope that you do, don't start, all right? If you have your Bibles or Scripture journal, I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to Luke 17. Luke 17. We're going to be in verses 11 through 19 together this morning. Luke 17, 11 through 19. If you don't have a Scripture journal, you want one um, to use during the rest of this study. Uh, there are... I think four available there on the welcome desk. Feel free to go grab one um, and use that uh, now, or you could do it after service. Either one is fine, but uh, Luke 17 is where we'll be. It'll be behind me on the screen in my translation for you to follow along there as well. If you got it, say I got it. <laughs> All right, let's go ahead and read this together. Luke 17, starting verse 11. The Holy Spirit says, on the way to Jerusalem, he, Jesus, was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has saved you. Amen. This is God's word. May God write. It's eternal truths on all of our hearts. What comes to your mind when you think of God? What, what do you picture? Not, not in some sense of like uh, some sort of physical appearance, but what is he like in your mind? A.W. Tozer famously said that what comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Do you agree with that? Would you also agree that it's important that we get our thoughts about God right? Is that important? Miroslav Volf said that there is a God, there is God, and there are images of God, but some people don't see the difference between the two. There is a God and there are images of God. You know what he meant by that? He meant that there is who God really is as revealed in scripture. And then there are things we've decided about God. Things that we've conceived in our minds. He said some people assume that who they believe God to be and who God truly is are one and the same. But in fact, our images of God are rather different from God's reality. Wolf went on to say that there are two false images of God that are particularly irresistible to us. And that these are mostly subconscious. <clears throat> he said that we run from one to the other, these two main images of God that we have concocted. We don't, we don't stick with one, we just kind of bounce from one to the other and then back again. These are the two. The first he calls God the negotiator. This is the approach to God that basically says, I'll do this, now God, you do that in return. It's kind of like, you remember Salieri from Amadeus, where 
He tells God he'll be a good boy, he'll be ethical and chaste and charitable if God would only, in return, just make him the world's greatest composer. Like he made a deal with God that God never agreed to. Now, we could do that, can't we? Well, we could try to strike a bargain with God where we make the appeal that if we do this or that or we are moral or whatever, that God is therefore obligated to give us good things in return. And this kind of shows up when bad things happen, we ask what? What did I do to deserve this, right? Which is a question that is lined with, haven't I done my side of the bargain by being good and upright and moral and doing my religious duty? Isn't God defaulting on his end of the deal? Volf says this one falls apart for the simple fact that we have nothing to offer God. Not really, right? Why? Because God lacks nothing, does he? He lacks nothing. He doesn't need anything that we have to offer. So when Saliara offers God his chastity, industry, and humility in return for musical genius, God could tell him, I've got something you want, but you've got nothing I need. The other problem with seeing God as a negotiator is that even if we could entice God into making a deal with us, we would have no way of enforcing compliance, would we? Not to mention the fact that before we even think of God think of offering God anything, he has already made demands on us, for instance, in the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount. Not just demands, but tough ones. This goes directly to the parable that we looked at last week in 7 through 10, didn't it? Which, which carried the point that God is sovereign, that he requires obedience, but that he also does not reward based on merit. You see? <coughs> Excuse me. We saw there that people should never presume that their obedience to his commands has earned them his favor. Servants can't demand anything, nor creatures their creator. So that first conception won't work, will it? God is negotiator. God is not a negotiating God. God's goods are not for sale. You, you can't buy them with money or good deeds. God doesn't make deals. God gives, says Paul. Well, that's the sec what's the second false image of God that we've dreamed up and imposed on him. Wolf calls it God the Santa Claus. This idea is that God showers us with gifts. Santa doesn't lay down conditions prior to giving gifts, even if parents lamely try to warn little imps, says Wolf, that Santa gives only to good boys and girls. After dispensing his gift, Santa makes no demands, right? With a bottomless bag of goodies, he comes out of nowhere, and after giving, granting everybody's wish, he returns to nowhere. Wolf says, this is what we do as worshipers of Santa Claus God. This is what we do. We embrace the conviction that God is an infinitely generous source of all good, which is true. But we conveniently forget that we were created in God's image to be in some significant sense like God, not in his divinity, but like God in the sense of his righteousness, holiness, loving enemies, and the like. To live as, as human beings is to live in sync with who God is and how he acts. Both of these wrong views of God come down to this. Are you ready? A posture of believing in some sense that we are owed good things from God along with a desire for God's gift without receiving God himself. Wanting good things abstracted, you see, from God's person. Loving the gifts 
more than the giver. Now, the story before us is a familiar one, isn't it? You've heard this story. Here we see Jesus perform the miraculous in relation to lepers once again. And if we wanted to hang out on the surface level of this text, we could just say that this is a text about gratitude, right? Be thankful. Don't be ungrateful. Well, that's a good lesson, isn't it? But while there is indeed a shocking lack of gratitude in this story, and Jesus is shown as a generous and gracious giver here, it is telling us so much more than that. So much more than be thankful, be grateful, say thank you once in a while for goodness sake. Rather, this goes directly to the question, who is the God revealed in Jesus Christ? This is a text about the identity of who Jesus is. And he is neither God the negotiator, nor God the Santa Claus, but someone greater than we can imagine. This is a story about Jesus, and it's meant to tell us about him. It's meant to show us how we ought to respond and relate to him. And it confronts us with our own inclination to want good things, but not want the one who gives good things. To love the gift, but miss the giver. So our text opens with Luke setting the scene for us there in verse 11. He tells us that Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem, and he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. His exact location is not named. No city is given. The most important aspect of the setting of the story is one that we might think is relatively unimportant when we're reading through Luke, which is that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. If you write in your scripture journals or your Bibles, make a note, highlight the fact that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, right? The city that he's in does not matter. The fact that he's on his way to Jerusalem does. This is one of those details that we might be inclined to like skip over in our Bible reading or see as just kind of relatively minor fact given to us by a thorough author. But this is much more than a passing mention of Jesus' itinerary. Keen readers of Luke will recall this from 951. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. It was there in 951. We were there about a decade ago, right? That a major shift happened toward Jesus' ultimate mission and goal. Everything that has happened since the end of chapter 9 has therefore been under the shadow of the looming cross. Luke doesn't want us to forget the purpose of Jesus' earthly ministry, even ahead of a miracle story. Jesus didn't come to simply heal lepers. He came to die. And he came to die at the place of the skull in Jerusalem as a substitute for sinful man. We must remember that this is the explicit reason why the second person of the Trinity came into the world and took on flesh to die and rise again. We must be reminded and often that Jesus was not a hapless victim who was executed against his will. His death was not a mistake. It was not a tragedy. It did not happen against his plans or design, and it wasn't an accident that God turned out to work in our favor. No one takes Jesus' life from him. He lays it down. I don't know if you've ever seen one 
before, but there was a bumper sticker. I haven't seen it much lately. A bumper sticker that was popular with people who love guns and have bad theology. And it said, if Jesus had a gun, he'd still be alive today. Now, yeah, exactly. Whoa. Now, whatever your thoughts are on guns, I couldn't care less, okay? You must admit that there are about a thousand things wrong with that message. For one, Jesus is alive today, right? Second, it makes it sound as if Jesus was put on the cross against his will. If he had a gun, he could have prevented his death. He could have defended himself. But who are we talking about again here? We're talking about the creator God who can make galaxies with a word. Who could hold universes in his hand. Who could summon angel armies on a moment's notice. Jesus wasn't trying to get out of crucifixion. He was heading headlong into it. Because he knew that's the only way to reconcile God to man. The only way to atone for your sins and mine. The only way to defeat death itself. One author said, too often Christians have presented Christ crucified as though he were a victim, one more to be pitied than believed in. On the pages of Scripture, nothing sanctions this view of Christ. In death, no less than in life, he is always the Lord. It was not a victim, but the Lord who died. The cross bespeaks a sacrificial death, a voluntary act. Christ's death was self-chosen. It was accepted and was therefore the character and value of sacrifice. Now, Luke doesn't want us to forget that. And in the midst of all that, we've seen since chapter 9, such as lessons and teachings and controversies with the religious leaders and the healing lepers here, Luke is saying, don't forget where this is all heading. Don't forget why Jesus came in the first place. <coughs> this is a story, then, that is under the shadow of the cross. Now, friends, these stories of healings by Jesus are not just neat stories that happened in Jesus' travel, right? This is, like all miracle stories, a reminder that when Jesus reverses disease or blindness or lameness or heals withered hands, he is signaling something about why he came into the world and what his death accomplishes, which is the reversal of the curse, making people whole and remaking the world as it was meant to be, to make every sad thing what? Come untrue. Story of the cleansing of ten lepers shows us that and more. Here we have Jesus entering an unnamed village when he is met by ten lepers. And it makes sense, right, that lepers are together. Because in this context, lepers, as you know, could not participate in normal life of citizenry, right? So they had to be kept separate, which meant they were lonely. And they had no friends or family that they could interact with. So yet a town with multiple lepers, the only people they could associate with was who? Uh, they're lepers, right? These ten lepers are together. They see Jesus come into the village. So they shout from a distance, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Now, Jesus' fame must have spread to them. They know something of Jesus' deeds. They heard some of the things that he has done. And so they make an appeal to him. They simply say, have mercy on us. But they also recognize his authority, don't they? They say, Jesus what? <coughs> Jesus what? Master. Which, here's just a gee whiz for you, makes them the only ones in Luke's gospel outside of the 12 disciples who refer to Jesus with that title. 
But because they are lepers, they're required to stand at least 50 paces away from people and places to avoid contamination. Lepers couldn't come near people at all. They couldn't even pop their head into someone's door without making the whole house unclean. And so people, as you can imagine, were afraid of contracting the disease. They didn't even want to be downwind from lepers. Now understand, this is not the same as leprosy today or what we call Hansen's disease. That has a cure. This is far worse and there is no cure to speak of. Now when the Bible talks about leprosy, it's talking about all kinds of skin diseases. The kinds that produce lesions or other swollen, blotchy areas on the skin that could be full of pus and could attack the nervous system and cause even fingers and toes to fall off. So the lepers were cast out. Does that make you in the mood for lunch? So the lepers were cast out of the city or village. They were to rip their clothes, okay? They were to let their hair grow out and hang loose. And if someone came their way, I bet you know from Sunday school, they're supposed to shout, unclean, unclean as a warning. But these lepers in Luke 17, they're not approached by Jesus, which is why they don't say unclean. But they do keep their distance, right? So they have to shout their request, which is simply what? Have mercy on us. In this interesting, they don't actually ask for a healing. They just ask for what? Just mercy. <coughs> now what's hidden in our English translation, is that the verb that's translated mercy carries a sense of urgency in the request. So it's not just have mercy on us. It's have mercy on us when? Now, have pity on us without delay. These men are in desperate need. They have been alienated from their family and their friends. They're outcasts whose place is firmly outside the village. They cannot come near others. They can't go to synagogue or temple. They are utterly unclean. This disease disqualifies them from communion with others and even worship in the community. They're in a desperate place. They need mercy if there's to be any hope for them. Now, friends, do you not see that what the lepers are physically, you and I are spiritually? Are we not spiritual lepers? Has our sin not made us thus? Are we not in ourselves unclean? Are we not alienated from God? Standing at a distance, as it were, because of our sin and disobedience, is our problem not more than skin deep? It's worse than leprosy then, isn't it? These men might have done nothing at all to deserve their plight. Leprosy was often contracted through no fault of the person. Theirs was a disease that was skin deep. Our sin has permeated what? <coughs> our entire being, heart, soul, and mind. Even our thoughts and our motivations are stained. Our hearts, far from being the best guide to life, as society and Disney movies want to tell us, is corrupted bent inward on itself and full of unrighteousness. Sin runs so deep in our nature that even our best deeds apart from Christ are what? Just filthy rags. These lepers were unclean because of their disease. They can approach any person whatsoever because they could transfer their uncleanness to other. Our sin has defiled us and made us unclean. We can't stroll up to God, can we, on our own? We're at a distance from Him that's so large that no move on our part could bridge the gap. 
We aren't just 50 paces away. We're as far from God as heaven is from earth. Can you measure that? We can't worship God. We can't know God. We can't go looking for him. And if we could, we couldn't find him. See, there's a reason why we gravitate to misunderstandings of God like Wolf described at first. There's a reason we want to think of God as negotiator or Santa Claus. There's a reason society tells us that people are basically good and there's just a few bad apples out there. There's a reason why the self-help industry is a billion dollar per year industry. There's a reason smiley prosperity preachers are millionaires whose wretched, repetitive books are bestsellers and their shallow, trite sermon clips circulate on social media all the live long day. It's because we refuse to come to grips with the fact that we are, apart from God, in our natural state, dead. We are hopeless, helpless, lost sinners. We aren't simply imperfect people in need of a little tidying up. We aren't well-meaning people in need of a little nudge in the right direction. We aren't wanderers who are just in need of a compass and a motivational speech that says, you can do it if you try. Friends, apart from God, we are dead, alienated, unclean, far from our Creator. Do you realize this? I mean, do you really understand this? Because unless you do, you'll never understand the gospel. You'll never be amazed by grace. As long as you're holding on to some semblance of life in yourself, you'll be ungrateful as the nine lepers who go their own way. You'll feel entitled and self-centered. You'll feel not that you deserve to be far from God because of your sin and rebellion, but that God actually owes you. You'll think you could pull yourself up by your own effort. Why else do we walk up to God and man with our arms full of all of our accomplishments? Because we know of no other way to be justified before God and people than to tell of our deeds. We know of no other way than to earn. As Martin Luther said, human nature is no longer able to imagine or conceive any way to be made right with God other than works. Robert Capone, similarly quipped, we are willing to buy any recipe for salvation as long as it leaves out the responsibility, leaves the responsibility for cooking up salvation firmly in human hands. Don't you see why leprosy is such a fitting metaphor for our natural spiritual state? What could the lepers do to become clean? On their own. Tell me. What could they do to stop their fingers and toes from falling off? What could they do to restore their own lives and dignity? <clears throat> what could they do to be made whole again? What could they do to heal themselves? Nothing at all. They were hopeless at the mercy of their disease. And what did they have to commend themselves to Jesus? What did they have in terms of deeds to convince Jesus that they were worthy of healing? All they had to commend themselves to Jesus is the same thing that we have to commend ourselves to Jesus, which is to say nothing. And you know what? That's good news. You know why that's good news? Because that's all you need. You see? All you need in order to get Jesus is nothing. All you need is empty hands. All you need is need. Don't you see? All you need is to say, Jesus, 
Jesus, Master, have mercy on me. I'll see, but that's too simple. And quite frankly, it's kind of offensive in a society where earning is the only way to have dignity. Earning is the only way that makes sense. Surely we must do something. Surely my record commends me in some way to God. I'll do anything, just don't make me admit I'm helpless, hopeless, and weak. Just don't tell me I am someone who needs pity. You know, this story, it might remind you of another story in Scripture. In our story, there's a Samaritan who receives the healing, right? Jesus calls him a foreigner. Do you guys remember in the Old Testament in 2 Kings when another foreigner was leprous? His name was, anybody know Sunday school answer? Naaman? He was a mighty warrior. He was the captain of the army of Syria. By all accounts, he was a great man with a great resume. So he used his position to get the king to send a letter to Israel's king along with a bunch of silver and gold and clothing to appeal to Israel's God for him to be healed. Well, the prophet Elisha heard about this and told the king to send Naaman to him. Okay, So Naaman and his crew pull up to Elisha's house, and Elisha doesn't even come out. Instead, he sends a messenger, tells Naaman to go wash in the Jordan River seven times. That's simple enough, right? Well, Naaman doesn't like that. He flips out because he expected something more, something more complicated and elaborate to receive the healing. He thought Elisha was going to come out, wave his arms, call on the name of the Lord, and that would be that. He also thought that the rivers of his home country would be a better place for a washing. He thought he was going to need to do something more elaborate to be healed. He thought he could buy himself a miracle. He thought he could buy Israel's God off. He thought he had a better way of being healed than Elisha did, and it involved Naaman doing more work. He wanted to earn a healing with his work and his reputation and his deeds and his wealth and some elaborate ritual. Naaman was after a God who could be put into debt. But this is a God of grace who puts everyone else in debt. What Naaman needed was a lesson on grace. Just wash yourself was hard because it was too easy. To do it, Naaman had to admit that he was needy and helpless and weak and that Healing from God could neither be bought nor earned. What a bummer to the self-sufficient and impressive to hear that God is not impressed with them. Isn't that a bummer? What a disappointment to the self-righteous to hear that in God's paradigm, strength is weakness and weakness is strength. Have mercy on me is the only appeal that is needed because in just those few short words is a declaration of inability and desperation. It is admittance of helplessness to make oneself clean. It is to throw yourself on the mercy of the divine court. It is to recognize the reason Jesus must go to Jerusalem and that the only way for you to have the distance between you and God bridged is through the work Jesus will do on Calvary's hill with absolutely zero contribution from you. If you want God's grace, said Tim Keller, all you need is need. All you need is nothing, but most people don't have it. We come to God saying, look at all I've done. 
or maybe look at all I've suffered. God, however, wants us to look to him. <clears throat> you see why all this is important, don't you? If you don't get the enormity of what we've been talking about, then you'll miss the entire scandal of Jesus coming into the world. You'll miss the sheer outrageousness of God coming and taking on flesh to be executed on a Roman cross. While we're crafting ladders to heaven, the Creator God bypassed it on the way down and then kicked the ridiculous thing over. Do you see the scandal? Have you ever heard the story of Father Damien? He was a priest who volunteered to enter a leper colony in Hawaii. Volunteered. And to live among the lepers. He did nothing to separate himself from the people. Nothing. He dipped his fingers in the poi bowl along with their patients. He shared his pipe. He didn't always wash his hands after banishing sores. He got close. As close as you could get. John Ortberg writes this to Father Damien. Listen. For 16 years, he lived in their midst. He learned to speak their language. He bandaged their wounds, embraced bodies no one else would touch, preached to hearts that would otherwise have been left alone, and he was not careful about keeping his distance either, knowing he could become sick too. One day he stood up and began his sermon with two words, we lepers. Now he wasn't just helping them, now he was one of them. From this day forward, he wasn't just on their island, he was in their skin. First he had chosen to live as they lived, now he would die as they died. Now they were in it together. One day, God came to earth and began his message, we lepers. Now he wasn't just helping us, now he was one of us. Now he was in our skin, now we were in it together. You see that scandal? Now, if we aren't so bad, if we're basically pretty good, if we could do things to commend ourselves to God, if we could earn our way to God, if we could bridge the gap between us and God through our sure grit and determination and impressiveness, if, if we aren't really wretched sinners, if we aren't unclean or if we are capable of cleaning ourselves up, if sin is just a whoopsie-daisy and not cosmic treason, then what in the world did Jesus come and enter our mess for? What do you do all that for? We want to hold on to some shred of awesomeness and hem and haw around our lostness and helplessness. But my friend, we cannot, if we are to receive Jesus, we can't have anything on, in our arms and call out to Jesus. We can't come up with arguments and recite speeches that will excuse our sins and self-centeredness and idolatry with a chorus of, you have to understand, see? And what had happened was, all you need is need. The only speech you need is an urgent cry of desperation that says, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's it. And what should happen if you do? You see what happens here? You see? Jesus tells them, just go yourselves, show yourselves to the priests so they can be declared clean and they can be restored to society. He doesn't heal them right away. He heals them as they are on their way. Then what happens? How many 
when they're healed, turns back and comes to Jesus. Do you see it, though? Suddenly, the gap, you see it? Between Jesus and him has been mended. He no longer needs to be at a distance. He can go right up to Jesus. And what does he do when he gets to Jesus? Look. <coughs> What's he do? Falls down at Jesus' feet. You see, you have to see that this leper's response is the fitting response to Jesus. In fact, let me go this far to say this. We see the posture of life that someone who has cried out to Jesus for mercy should live with. So if you are someone here today who considers themselves a Christian, here is the posture of life you should take. The man falls squarely at Jesus' feet with gratitude, offering praise. He thanks him. He shouts with a loud voice, praising and worshiping Jesus. He's attributing the work of God to Jesus, for they are one and the same. And he makes an absolute spectacle of this cleansing. My friend, is this the posture of your life? Do you live at Jesus' feet? Where else is there to live? Where else, do you, where else will you find meaning and wholeness? Do you live praising him? Do you live as one who is grateful, naming your blessings more than you name your difficulties? Do you live day to day amazed at the grace of so great a Savior? Now, let's ask the question that this story begs to ask. What is it that you prize the most? What do you prize more than anything? Jesus or what he offers? The things he has blessed you with or him? See, what's the difference between this leper and the other ones? You see what Jesus asks? Were not ten cleansed? Then literally this is the next question. The nine, where? That's literally what it says. The nine, where? Where are they? Ten were healed, but only one returned. Where are the other ones? Where'd they go? They got the benefit of the healing, but they went their own way. Meanwhile, only the Samaritan came back to the feet of Jesus to offer thanks and praise. Daryl Box said in his commentary, the question is really of Jesus, an expression of Jesus' negative evaluation of their ingratitude, an indictment for not responding to God's gracious act. Jesus is not asking for an answer. He's making a stinging observation. Let's, let's, let's do a little pretending, all right? Let's pretend that you could, we could go back okay, and find all 10 of these lepers and interview them one year after this story, okay? One year after they cry out to Jesus, he heals them, they go to the priest, they're declared clean, all right? If we went up to the nine who didn't go back to Jesus and you asked, what was the greatest day of your life? They would likely have the same answer, don't you think? They might say something like, I'll never forget it, the day I was healed. I was a leper. I was outside of society. I had no friends except other lepers. I was unclean. I couldn't go to synagogue. I couldn't be around my family. 
I couldn't do anything. Everyone looked down on me. I was alienated from everyone, but then I was miraculously healed, and now I have my family back. And now I'm back in society. And now no one looks down on me anymore. And now I have friends, and I go to synagogue. I could hug people, and I get close. The day I was healed was the greatest day of my life. It's fair enough, right? That's a big deal, being healed of leprosy and having life restored. But what about the Samaritan leper? What would he say if you found him a year later and you asked, what is the greatest day of your life? I think he'd say, the greatest day of my life? I'll never forget it. It was the day I met the man who could heal leprosy. The greatest day of my life was the day I met the man who could forgive sinners. The greatest day of my life was the day I met Jesus. Do you see the difference? All were healed, but only one was saved. Only one allowed the healing to lead him to Jesus. For only one of them was Jesus the best part of the healing, even more than being restored to society. <coughs> you see, it's possible to want to be saved and want to be healed and want to be cleansed and miss Jesus. It's possible to want the gifts more than the giver. It's entirely possible to see yourself as someone who deserves hell and desires heaven and miss the fact that the greatest prize of all prizes is to have Jesus himself. How often has conversion to Christianity been packaged as, you don't want to go to hell when you die, do you? Don't you want to go to heaven where you can see your loved ones and have a mansion and walk on streets of gold? Well, then pray this prayer after me or raise your hand and walk this aisle and you're in. How often have we presented salvation as being attractive for the things you get? When really salvation is attractive because we get Jesus. How often have we packaged salvation as hell avoidance rather than Jesus gaining? Michael Reeves said that it seems that even for Christians, overlooking Jesus is easier than falling off a log. He says there are things that we wouldn't have if it weren't for Jesus that we actually allow to edge Jesus aside. He says we naturally gravitate, to, it seems, to, toward anything but Jesus, whether it's Christian worldview or grace or the Bible or the gospel, as if they were things in themselves that could save us. He says even the cross can get abstracted from Jesus as if the piece of wood had some power on its own. Other things, wonderful things, vital concepts, beautiful discoveries, so easily edge Jesus aside. Precious theological concepts meant to describe him and his work get treated as things in their own right. He becomes just another brick in the wall, but the center, the cornerstone, the jewel in the crown of Christianity is not an idea or a system or a thing. It's not even the gospel as such. It is Jesus Christ. Do you see? Jesus is everything. He is all. Is he everything to you? Don't you see that without Jesus, we wouldn't have salvation, but nothing about salvation would be worth it without him anyway. Do you see that the gifts pale in comparison to the giver? I mean, do you? The nine lepers enjoyed the gifts from Jesus. They indeed got a benefit, didn't they? 
They show that it's possible to receive benefits from Jesus, even miracles, and yet feel no necessity to seek Jesus further. They even acknowledge the power and authority of Jesus, but they have no interest in the person of Jesus. And that's what scares me about this story. People can love Jesus' benefits, but care little for Jesus himself. John Piper asked this, and I want you to ask this in your own heart. He said, the critical question for our generation and every generation is this. Are you ready? If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all your friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you've ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? Could you? Could I? Could we be content in a heaven without Christ? And if not, if Christ really was what made eternity worth wanting, why aren't we doing more to know and enjoy him now on earth? How many have believed themselves to be Christian simply because they had a desire to avoid hell? How many have claimed to know and love Jesus but have only a distant relationship with him that isn't active, isn't grateful, isn't at his feet, praising him with a loud voice? How many love and serve the gifts but not the giver? There is only one person in this story that was saved even though there were 10 who recognized Jesus' ability to heal and received good things from him. Only one. You see what it says in verse 19? You see where it says your faith has made you well? Literally, it says your faith has saved you. His returning to Jesus was symbolic of real converting faith. He wanted Jesus more than he wanted the ritual of declaring cleanness from some priest. He saw God in this miracle, and so he did the only thing that makes sense to seeing Jesus for who he is, worship at his feet. Is that where you live, friend? Are you someone who has never gotten over the sheer scandal of your salvation and thus lives with a constant sense of gratitude to so gracious a God? Is that you? Are you someone who at one time was really zealous about the gospel and surprised by God's grace to you, but now you have settled into a yawn-inducing sameness where you're no longer amazed by grace? Are you someone who was once shocked that someone like you could be saved, but now you aren't really all that surprised? Because let's face it, you're pretty darn good. And you've done a lot for others, and you're generous and hasn't God seen all that you've done? Are you someone who is grateful to God, or are you, like one of Dostoevsky's characters said, only likes to count your troubles but does not count your joys? Are you someone who believes God owes you good things, or do you see that we deserve what we've earned, which is the wages of our sin, death, and that all else is grace, to which the only fitting response is gratefulness to a merciful and loving God? You see, Luke goes out of his way to tell us that one was saved was a Samaritan. Did you notice that? He just tags it on to the end of the sentence. 
Only one come back, a Samaritan. They didn't, the other nine, this is the implication, were Jews. They didn't come back to Jesus, and maybe that's because they presumed their salvation because they were sons of Abraham. Maybe because mom and dad were religious. They thought we were good to go. But what they didn't realize is that family heritage gets you nothing in the kingdom of God. Jesus could raise sons of Abraham from the streets if he wanted to. Maybe some of you are presuming upon your family heritage too. But mom and dad's or Mima and Peepaw's religion won't save you. Your family heritage doesn't get you anything before the throne of God. Rote religious ritual won't save you. A fat bank account and nice toys won't save you. Reputation won't save you. Being well thought of by your peers won't save you. You need yourself to go to the feet of Jesus. Have you done that? Some of you never cried out to Jesus for mercy. Some of you are still holding on to some semblance of earning or negotiating or seeing God as cosmic Santa who only wants to shower you with good gifts but will mostly stay out of your life. And that's the arrangement, quite frankly, that you like. Some of you are too proud to admit that you're weak and needy. Some of you are still holding on to your record and your abilities and your reputation, your achievement inside and outside the church and believe God owes you not just salvation but a good life as defined by the world. Some of you have loved the gifts more than the giver. Some of you glory in the things Jesus provides more than Jesus. Some of you claim to know and love Jesus, but you don't praise him truly from the heart. You keep him at a distance, not living at his feet. Some of you are in such a rut of familiarity with the message of the gospel that you are no longer astounded by the beauty and grace of Jesus. Some of you yawn at the gospel. Some of you are so busy with things of earth and so wrapped up in the things you have going on that you rarely consider, let alone worship Jesus. You've pushed him to the fringes. He's an add-on, an addition, simply another part of your life on the same level of everything else. But he, more than seemingly everything else, is pushed to the edges of your life. Do any of those descriptors fit you? Some of those fit me, and I get to study the Bible for a living. There's grace available for you, my friend. Do you see the beauty of Christ? You got, that's all I want. That's all I really want. All I want is for you to see the beauty of this glorious Jesus. I want you to see his graciousness, how he loves even those on the margin of society. In fact, he even loves those who think they have it altogether. You need him. Whatever you think you need, you don't. You need Jesus. That's what you need. I need better health, more money, a good retirement, this person or that to notice or love me. I need validation. I need a little more of this or a little better of that. No, you need to be saved from perishing outside the village, left to your own sin, dying in those sins to face the wrath of God. You need a Christ so loving and merciful and humble that he would come to earth and go to Jerusalem and die in your place, taking on the wrath of God in your stead. If any of those descriptors I mentioned a moment ago fit you, which I promise at least one of them does, all he requires of you to receive him for the first time or get more of him is to come with your nothing and say, have mercy on me, a sinner, and mean it.
and he'll be yours. And you'll be his forever. And he could be the center of your life. Then he could be where you derive your meaning and purpose and value. And he can make you whole. And he could be the prize of all prizes.